with the playing of that familiar theme song, ladies and gentlemen, we go out to the other coast of the United States, uh, out to Hollywood, and to Michael Snyder, who's here to tell you how come like that. Yeah. Hello, Michael. Hi, Alex, and um, happy holidays to all GabNet listeners and uh, and you, too. I uh, hope everything is uh, doing groovy in your world and you're ready for the new year. Yeah. And in the meantime, we got a bunch of new movies that opened up. Uh, if we uh, can get to them, well, that's your job, not mine. Okay, just you know, just needed a little confirmation that we're on the same page here. Uh, anyway, let's kick things off with a, a kind of a blockbuster, but one that's um, fizzling in my book. Uh, it's not so much a glorified B movie as a shiny assembly line D movie, well, no, DC movie, as in the DC Comics line, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom is a splashy, often frantic and eye-catching, but ultimately soggy sequel to the decent Aquaman movie from a few years ago that was directed by James Wan, uh, driving wheel of the Conjuring, Insidious, and Saw film franchises. Uh, the first uh, Aquaman flick introduced Jason Momoa's jocular, muscle-bound, half-human, half-Atlantean superhero and eventual Justice League member Arthur Curry, a.k.a. Aquaman, son of a lighthouse keeper and a royal queen of the undersea kingdom of Atlantis. So Curry uh, can swim like crazy, breathe underwater, wrestle a giant squid, and telepathically command sea creatures – in Lost Kingdom, also directed by Juan, Arthur is married to his equally oceanic sweetheart, Mera, played again by Amber Heard, and they're the parents of a baby, Arthur Jr., who is already showing signs of his genetic background by commanding the goldfish in his grandfather's fish tank to swim in unison like aquatic ballet dancers but there's an electric eel in paradise, and that's the villainous Black Manta who gets a hold of a magical black trident, which he's going to use to ramp up global warming and pollution, enslaving and or destroying the world, and most of all, tormenting Aquaman for killing his wife, Mara, excuse me, um, I, I, he's going to actually torment Aquaman by killing his wife, Mara, and his cute little son. And, and also Aquaman's parents, again, played by two well-regarded Aussie actors, uh, Timura Morrison and a certain Nicole Kidman. So all become uh, victims of Manta uh, because apparently uh, Manta's father died in battle with Arthur and he's holding a grudge. So anyway, Aquaman's going to have to free the imprisoned half-brother and former king Orm. Uh, who was the nemesis in the previous Aqua movie. Uh, here he is again played by Patrick Wilson. And the idea is that he and Orm are going to team up to have any chance of defeating Black Manta, uh, played by another returnee, uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. I mean, they all came back for this, including Juan. And with Juan back at the helm of this gaudy ship, there are a few rousing action sequences and creepy monsters, but a lot of overly busy, high-tech computer game visuals that now border on tedious and perfunctory. And there's a lot of weak banter between Arthur and Orm that's meant to be funny. Uh, only Momoa's charm and the commitment of superior actors, Wilson, Kidman, Morrison, Abdul-Mateen, and Randall Park elevate this above disposable. And, and by the way, this is the final movie 
in Warner Brothers' DC Comics expanded cinematic universe that brought us the incredibly uneven Justice League, Superman, Wonder Woman, and Flash films. Uh, it's, it's going out with a whatever, uh, and it's soon going to be replaced by a new attempt to out-Marvel Marvel with a series of interlocked movies overseen here by filmmaker James Gunn of Guardians of the Galaxy and the Suicide Squad fame, and starting with a Superman reboot. Good luck, James Gunn. Yeah, well, I mean, isn't, is, isn't this too much too late? I mean, yeah, the, 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 the superhero movies are dead. Well, you know, they certainly seem uh, on life support, right? Yeah, yeah. But let's be straight up about this. This past year, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 came out, and it was very, very good and very successful at the box office, and it was James Gunn's work. So I guess DC, you know, is trying to bet on a winner. Let's put it that way. Okay, anyway. next. All right, let's move on because this thing was a disappointment. Um, did we need a movie musical of Alice Walker's beloved 1982 novel examining the struggles and triumphs of a group of close-knit black women, that being the color purple? Uh, and that's three black women, uh, but one in particular, in the American South during the early part of the 20th century. We already had an acclaimed dramatic movie of the novel mm -hmm. in 1985, and that was followed by a Broadway musical version of the story in 2005, which has now been brought to the big screen by producers Oprah Winfrey, who was in the cast of the 85 movie, and Steven Spielberg, who directed the first film. And damned if it isn't as entertaining, inspiring, uh, you know, and uplifting uh, as, uh, you know, the first version of Walker's book that reached the screen. Uh, it's all about sisterhood, survival, and redemption. There are strong and soulful songs that are beautifully performed by the cast. And the cast of This Color Purple, led by Fantasia Barino as the uh, plucky Seely, who has to face challenge after challenge in her life. Taraji P. Henson, who I have loved since person of interest on TV. Here's, uh, she's the uh, free-spirited, upwardly mobile Suge. And Danielle Brooks as the abused but undaunted Sophia. They act like crazy and sing the bejesus out of those songs. The other players are also laudable. They include Coleman Domingo as the villainous but pitiable Mr. Plus Corey Hawkins, Sierra, uh, Ingenue, uh Ellis Taylor, uh, her, Hallie Bailey, the Little Mermaid, the new Little Mermaid, David Allen, Greer, Louis Gossett Jr., and even John Batiste. You know something? This is a movie review, not a playbill from Broadway. Just it, well, it list, feels list, like list, a playbill. List the top stars and leave it at that. Well, it's amazing if John Batiste has a role in this baby. Look, if it doesn't reach the heights of the 85 movie with Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah, that's an awfully high bar. This revival directed by Blitz Bazawul with spirit and tenderness certainly revived me. I couldn't believe that I enjoyed The Color Purple, the musical, and I did. It's in theaters on Christmas Day. Okie dokie, let's see what else there is in Santa's bag. Oh, uh, The Iron Claw. In an impressive feat of dramatization, director and screenwriter Sean Durkin took the true saga of a pro wrestling clan and forged The Iron Claw, 
a constantly fascinating, surprising, and tragedy-tinged movie about aspiration, family dysfunction, and for better or worse, personal determination. Um, in the 80s, the intensely loyal Von Erich brothers uh, were driven by their father, a former wrestler himself, to fight their way out of their regional matches with the goal of doing what he never did, win a national pro wrestling championship belt. I'm watching this thing, and I'm extremely impressed as I'm watching by Zach Efron from High School Musical and me and Orson Welles, among other things, as we've never seen him before. Uh, his portrayal of brother Kevin Von Erich is a marvel of sheer will and physical fury in the face of pain, and he's matched in intensity by Jeremy Allen White, star of The Bear on FX, as brother Curry Von Erich, Harris Dickinson as brother David Von Erich, and Holt McCallany as their domineering father Fritz, the embodiment of toxic masculinity whose signature wrestling move, the Iron Claw, was passed down to his sons. Plus, you always get, uh, you know, other supporting players that you hate to hear about. But in this case, we have the chameleon Lily James uh, as Kevin's devoted sweetheart and Maura Tierney as Doris Von Erich, long-suffering wife to Fritz and mom to the boys. Kudos to Durkin and his cast for the Iron Claw. It's a gut punch and a body slam of a movie that may hurt your heart, but will linger in your mind long after you see it. It's in theaters, really enjoyed The Iron Claw, one of the better films of the year. Um, here's one, Ferrari. Director Michael Mann's Ferrari, and that's his movie, not his car, takes on the story of Italian sports car legend Enzo Ferrari, the ex-Formula One racer and head of Ferrari Motors to tell a tale of ambition and obsession set in the early 1950s. Man, creator of the uh, TV series Miami Vice, directed Heat and Ali, among his other memorable films. And now he's got uh, Ferrari uh, motoring forward through intimate scenes of familial strife and, and thrilling segments immersed in the excitement and da uh, danger of racing. Ferrari ultimately satisfies, regardless of its primary focus, being only one significant slice of Enzo Ferrari's life. And that's largely due to the propulsive action of the formula one racing season of 1957 the racing sequences are pretty much the best thing about the movie although in his second recent performance as a significant italian figure after his role in house of gucci adam driver does a better job of nailing an italian accent and delivering a measure of gravitas as enzo ferrari whose marriage was shaken by tragedy and undermined by betrayal but driver is outdone by penelope cruz she offers a truly complex uh, complex characterization as enzo's wife laura who despite the disenfranchisement she felt at playing second fiddle to enzo's mistress played here by shailene woodley was an astute business mind and crucial to the success of the Ferrari company. Alas, that company is facing bankruptcy in this movie, and Enzo is determined to risk it all by pushing his team on the racing circuit to win one more wager uh, and one more major race. Uh, and, you know, they're risking their lives. And if you'd like to see a man gambling with his life and livelihood while the employees gamble with their lives at high speeds, Ferrari should do the trick. It'll be in theaters on Christmas Day. Um. You know, I was a little disappointed in Maestro because there was a lot of hype going on, but there a, are so a, many. A little, a little. 
There were so many good things about it, but it's so episodic in, in its narrative. It hopscotches through the years. Wait, wait, It has a good, few good things to recommend it, like what? Oh, uh, the performance, uh, uh, no, for instance, no, by no. Emily, uh, excuse me, Carrie Mulligan as Bernstein's she wife. She was okay. She was okay. Yeah, okay. I'll tell you what, let me just stop right now. Please review Maestro for me. I can do it in two words. It sucked. Well, that's an oversimplification and certainly not something I'd agree but with. Simplified at all. but accurate. Uh, on your on your look, uh, look, look. Let, let me let me just tell you one of the things. I have people say, "Oh, he was so great in this film." No, he wasn't. The makeup was. Well, you know? that was uh, the work of the guy who did the makeup of. What? I, we just lost you. Gary Oldman in uh, The Darkest Hour, which was a fantastic, where he turned uh, Oldman into Winston Churchill. And here he turns Bradley Cooper into Leonard Bernstein. And I, I thought, you know, I thought he was OK. He was good. But Carrie Mulligan really was the best thing about this film, uh, which uh, is an attempt to tell the story of renowned orchestra conductor and acclaimed American composer Leonard Bernstein. No, but it's not. And it's I, not it, it doesn't capture Bernstein. And I'll tell you why. Because he decided that he was going to go with the marriage rather than the career. And the career is what was so important to all of us and what was so phenomenal. And you get no sense of that in this film. Well, you get some, but it was up close some, and personal with some. the marriage, and that was the ultimate thing here, that his conflict between loving men and trying to be a good husband to his wife. And, you know, there there are things I really, really liked about this. But, yeah, man, uh, you left the film whistling the makeup, basically. Well, this is, this is a kind of film that people say, oh, he was so great. No, the makeup was great, and he had kind of had the, the uh, voice down. But outside of that, it's a lousy acting job. Just a well, lousy. I, I, and, and, and for direction, it is so pretentious in its direction, I, I was starting to puke. Well, I'll tell you, um, his um, score to West Side Story has always been one of my favorite pieces of music, that being Bernstein. Uh, and you're right, they kind of shortchanged that part of his life. You, they, but you don't they even hear them. They don't even talk about his young people's concerts, which were, was the thing that I uh, got to know Bernstein through. And they talk phenomenal. about it a little. They, they show him they, No, they just conducting. fluff it off. They fluff off uh, West Side Story. They fluff off most most of his career. They made a bigger deal out of Candide, which was one of his lesser works, uh, than they did West Side Story. I mean, it's just, uh, I God, it was horrible. It was just horrible. I mean, uh, I, 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 I disagree with you. I just don't. I, I just know if you've flawed. got Netflix, you can watch it for nothing. Don't waste your time. Life's too short. I just thought it was flawed. I, it does have um, many things to recommend it. But anyway, look, let's move on. <laughs> it's shocking when you consider the success and impact of recent American productions featuring the apex of Japanese monsters. Uh, Godzilla minus one is a new blockbuster. Uh, you know, from Japan's Toho Studios, uh, original home of the gargantuan radioactive dino lizard Godzilla. And and despite all these other films, including the Japanese Godzilla films and, and again, the American ones, this is arguably the very best Godzilla movie since his debut in 1954's Japanese movie Gojira. 
Um, anyway, uh, in Godzilla Minus One, it's the waning years of World War II. A kamikaze pilot crashes near a Japanese encampment on an island in the Pacific, and he and the people at this en encampment encounter a gigantic prehistoric lizard. And after the war, and in the wake of uh, American atom bomb tests in the Pacific, the ex-pilot uh, disgraced and guilt-stricken because he survived the global conflict. He, you know, a kamikaze pilot who didn't crash into a plane, uh, his, his plane into a ship or whatever. He tries to build a life for himself uh, amid the ruins of Japan and, and finds himself as the father figure in a de facto nuclear family. But uh, that dino lizard, presumably irradiated by the atomic explosions, has grown and lurks in the waters off Japan. So what if the enormous creature decides to attack uh, a group consisting of the ex-pilot, some fellow military vets and scientists may be the only hope for the salvation of their country yeah. and humanity. Okay. Director, screenwriter, and head of special effects, Takashi Yamazaki, has made a magnificent kaiju movie with a high point um, being the the personal stories uh, told here, but all the uh, the monster sequences are fantastic. And he made this thing at purportedly a fraction of the Warner Brothers uh, legendary pictures, Monarch, Monsterville's, uh, Monsterverse films. Uh, I thought Godzilla Minus One was really amazing. One of the better films I've seen this year, and it's in select theaters where it should be seen. You know what is not as good in this genre is the, uh, I can't remember, what's it called? A Monarch? Uh, Monarch, the, uh, Legends, uh, yeah. whatever it's called, Legacy of Monsters. Which is on, on uh, Apple Plus. Just boring. Just. How many episodes did you watch? I've watched uh, I, all but the last one. You know, I'm. I'm. In, it's not great, but I've. I've been watching, and I'm going to watch it to the end. I. I, I liked it much better than you did. Well, but, I. Just, um, I just find it boring. It just doesn't seem to go anywhere. You know, and well, also, telling, it, it, it also seems cheap. It doesn't seem expensive. It does. It's telling a number of different stories and whatever, but we'll see. We'll see how it plays out because I am going to watch it to the end. Uh, the new movie Wonka. This is another thing where you went like, "Why are you doing this?" Uh, it's uh, a new movie prequel to the beloved Roald Dahl tale, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, you know, and accordingly to the two movies that Dahl's book inspired, you know, why other than the crash uh, cash grab should anyone bother to tell the origin of uh, the magical chocolatier Willy Wonka, played previously by Gene Wilder and less successfully by Johnny Depp? Uh, so, you know, Willie's this enigmatic figure, especially in Wilder's version, a charmingly creepy combo of, of uh, sinister and charming. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, despite going into the screening of Wonka with a chip on my shoulder, but I walked out with a big smile on my face. It, it may sound like I'm damning Wonka with faint praise, but I felt like it was so much better than it had any right to be considering its conception and my expectations. Uh, there are reasons. Uh, the director is Paul King, who helmed the two absolutely delightful Paddington Bear movies. And uh, those uh, reasons continue with King's Wonka co-screenwriter Simon Farnaby, who helped create the uh, very witty and engaging UK sitcom Ghosts. 
uh, which spawned the popular American version of the show. And there's also the enthusiastic cast led by Timothy Chalamet as the, uh, believe it or not, lovable uh, 20-something Willie. And it's chock full of notable comedic talents, including uh, Olivia Coleman, who, as you know, uh, she started out in comedy on Peep Show, Keegan-Michael Key, Rowan Atkinson, that's right, Mr. Bean, Blackadder himself, and there are many others. Um, there are a few members of the Ghosts uh, UK ensemble cast, too, and Hugh Grant plays an Oompa Loompa. So from the plot of Wonka, you can assume Willie's experiences as a fledgling confectioner gave him the sometimes nasty edge of the older character. Uh, he's abused by his landlady and her lover, undermined by a three-man London consortium of candy makers, and uh, tortured by local police on the take. But even when the situation turns dark for Willie, there's still sweetness. Uh, anyway, the tunes, including some echoes of classic Willy Wonka, uh, favorites pure imagination and the umpa lumpa song are are decent and for comparison's sake i like them a lot better than the originals in the recent disney film wish this could never replace the gene wilder movie in our hearts uh it's not the willy wonka film we wanted or needed but wonka is pretty good holiday fare with some laughs and cheer in store for viewers it's in theaters i'll bet you it's going to make it uh, to streaming pretty quickly but um i thought it was okay you know um let's wrap up with movies i thought were really really good and they uh, opened a couple weeks ago so we kind of saved them for last but american fiction is an impressive debut feature film from director and screenwriter cord jefferson it delivers crackling satire in the context of a of an interpersonal dramedy and mostly it's a kind of a spiky funny and savvy gander at the inescapable impact of racial stereotyping, social status, and public perception in the digital world, Jeffrey Wright is superb as Monk, an intellectually evolved but self-important black scholar and author from a well-to-do yet dysfunctional background that plagues him. Monk's career takes off uh, in an unexpected turn when he cranks out a faux ghetto memoir as a joke, and it becomes a sensation. I, I thought this was really a tremendous film. Truly one of my top 10 movies of the year, American fiction. Another one would be The Zone of Interest, which is uh, chilling and rightfully chilly. Uh, it's British director and co-screenwriter Jonathan Glazer's adaptation of the eponymous novel by Martin Amos about the mundane, albeit privileged, family life of SS officer Rudolf Huss. Um, while he serves as the commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II, Huss, his wife and children, live in a nice house next door to the camp, going about their daily endeavors, entertaining guests, and seemingly unfazed by the unspeakable evil happening beyond their garden wall. I mean, even if we never see the nightmarish suffering in the camp, this take on the Holocaust does not lessen the horrific fact of what's happening off screen. Absolutely amazing, stunning film, The Zone of Interest. And let's wrap things up with Poor Things, stunning in every sense of the word. Uh, Poor Things is the latest ambitious, idiosyncratic presentation from Maverick Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, reimagining the tale of Frankenstein as unhinged social commentary, mixing body horror, sexual politics, feminist manifesto. And speaking of Candide, a Candide-like coming-of-age story. It takes us to Britain in the late 1800s and the lab of a deformed, controlling uh, genius played by Willem Dafoe. 
great casting there. He resurrects a dead young woman named Bella, uh, brought to life, so to speak, in magnificent fashion by Emma Stone. The reborn Bella has to learn or relearn what it means to be human from scratch. Uh, her autonomy. Just we lost autonomy, capabilities, and desires growing after she runs off with the conniving lawyer. Yeah, we, the, we, we're, uh, Mark Ruffalo plays the lawyer. I, I was absolutely blown away by poor things. Yeah, your audio keeps cutting out. What are you watching, buddy? Um, well, I tell you, we watched a show yesterday, movie yesterday on Apple Plus, um, oh. that I kind of I thought was sweet and fun, uh, and it's Family Plan, of Mark Wahlberg. Um, not, 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 you know, I wouldn't say great movie making or anything else, but of its sort, far more, far smarter and well written than most action films and with less action sequences than most action films. And it's just about a guy who's, you know, been an assassin in his past life and now is a family man. And he, it's, it's, if you get a chance, it's, it's, it's fun. You know, it's it's you're not going to waste your time watching it. That's what I feel about it. But um, this is that time of the year where we should come out with our best. And I'm just saying that because we've run out of time almost here, almost way over, uh, that we uh, maybe list the number one picture as you see it of the year. Are you there? The number one picture of the year, as I see it, I, I can't tell you that. I will say what my top ten was, though. Your top ten? Okay, go with them quickly. Don't make comments on them. Just you know. No, no, I wasn't going to make any comments about it. My uh, top ten would be, as mentioned, uh, American Fiction was one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, the Zone of Interest is another. Mm -hmm. uh, the Taste of Things, the French film with Juliette Binoche, is another. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that um, uh, Poor Things, we've already mentioned, like I said. Uh, I thought Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. um, Monster, the uh, Corita film, uh, his latest film, a uh, Japanese director, Corita. Uh, I also would uh, include, uh, without question, Killers of the Flower Moon, mm -hmm. um, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Mm-hmm. The holdovers. Those are my oh, and dream scenario uh, with Nicolas Cage. Those are my top ten. Okay, my number one movie is Barbie. Seriously, I thought it was uh, entertaining piffle. I didn't think it was piffle at all. I think she made a far more far-reaching picture than she had to make. You know, this could have just been Barbie, cute Barbie, the, the kind of piffle you're talking about. This wasn't piffle. This was a tome about sexual roles and it she just gave it a, a, a real depth you know in fact i asked marjorie i said after we watched maestro okay what's the better film maestro or barbie and she immediately and she didn't want to see it originally said barbie you know? yeah well i won't get i won't get into my caveats about barbie but it was good it was absolutely uh, worth my time you and know it, it let me put it this favorite. way when i when i look at a picture and i say best picture i look at every aspect of filmmaking and, and how it coalesced that into best film. Because you can separate those out into best director, best screenwriter, best actor, best actress, you know, and so on. But when you're saying best movie, you're saying in totality, using all the talents together in combination, what was the best film that way? And I think Barbie, you know, in, in every, every aspect, really hit the mark. I mean, I was amazed by it. 
Well, yeah. You know, but of course you're... I would probably say the holdovers or American fiction for me. Yeah, I'm still trying to get through the holdovers, but, you know, I'll try in my best oh, oh, way. Oh, boo-hoo. Anyway, boo-hoo. listen, uh, have yourself a merry little well, wait Christmas. Wait a minute, let me start the theme. Okay, there's well, a theme. Well, I, I wanted to just reach out to you and, and wish you and Marjorie, a, you know, a happy holiday uh, directly instead of that generic thing at the beginning of the segment. Yeah, right, exactly. Hey, listen, have a happy holiday yourself and to everybody else listening to us. And uh, we'll see you in the new year, okay, Michael? Sounds good. And if, Take care. If everybody wants to stick around, there's more Gabnet coming right up. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.